You've just tuned into the Unify podcast from Unify Youth. Our goal is to equip young people with the Word of God so they can live empowered in Christ and tackle the challenges of this world. Tune in for weekly sermons, devotions, and interviews. Welcome to the Unify podcast. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we've been able to spend at camp so far, enjoying fellowship and games and learning from your word and the workshops. Lord, we pray that you would bless this time. Lord, would you help those that are here to listen, uh, to understand, to appreciate what you have done throughout history. And would you help me to speak clearly and faithfully. We commit this time into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. So, welcome to this workshop. We're going to be looking at different denominations. And the reason why we need to understand denominational similarities and differences is so that we can know with who and when we can have unity. Unity in our mission to grow in Christ, and our mission to make Christ known in our neighborhoods and across the world. And there's a couple of important questions that we need to ask and that I will be answering this workshop. The first one is this, what is a Christian denomination? Why are there, the second is this, why are there so many denominations? And thirdly, what are the differences between them? And this is what we're gonna be looking at in this workshop. And I want you to understand that with all of the denominations that we will go over in this workshop, that there are genuine Christians within each of them. And there are also many within these denominations that are also not Christians. It's not the denomination that makes a Christian. But denominations do help us to understand not just who is a Christian and who is not, but on what basis can we enjoy and engage in fellowship with them. I wouldn't be able to enjoy unity with someone of Islamic faith or a Hindu or a Sikh, somebody who believes in a different God. So then on what basis can I have unity with other Christian denominations, that is, Christians that have divergent beliefs to my own? And to what extent can I enjoy unity with other denominations? That's what I want to look at in this workshop. And we're going to make four stops first stop, what is a Christian denomination? Our second stop, I'll give a brief history of the Reformation. The third stop is, what are the main reasons for different denominations? And our final stop is the history and distinctives of different denominations. We'll go through a few denominations one by one and look at their history and look at their distinctives. So there's a long road ahead and a lot to learn. Um, but I hope that you, you, you'll take some things away from this. And you're kind of getting a two-for-one. You're getting a little bit of a Reformation history and a denominational differences in history workshop here. So firstly, what is a Christian denomination? There are a number of essential Christian beliefs. And there's value to having a creed or a statement that is a summation, a summary of what Christians must believe. And here are six essential beliefs that all Christians must believe in order to be 
a Christian. They must believe in the triune creator God. They must believe that Jesus is truly man and truly God. They must believe that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. They must believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that he rose from the dead in three days. And they must also believe that he ascended into heaven and one day will return. These are essential Christian beliefs. I want to move on from that and I'll give you a brief history of the Reformation. What happened during the Reformation? And this is really important because at the Reformation, following the Reformation, there's an explosion of denominations. Before this period in history, it was mostly the Catholic Church that had gotten, the Roman Catholic Church that had become corrupt over time. But at the Reformation, there is a return to the authority of Scripture, to the authority of God's Word to instruct what we believe and what we are to do. And out of that comes multiple denominations. So, what happened at the Reformation and why? Well, prior to the 1500s, as I've said, the Catholic Church was the church that existed. And over the centuries, it had gotten more and more corrupt. Although there were a number of contributing factors over decades, the Protestant Reformation really began in the year 1517, when a German monk uh, by the name of Martin Luther published his 95 theses, which were basically 95 points that Luther had against the teaching against the teaching of the Catholic Church. And the biggest point that Luther made was that the Catholic Church was corrupt, that it had instituted a system of indulgence, whereby someone is allowed to buy a certificate of pardon that would pardon them from facing punishment from their sin, for their sin, from God. And Luther, what he did is he rightly stood against this false teaching. And he believed that forgiveness of sin is not something that could be bought. That it is a free gift of grace given to us by God for those who have faith in him. Now this was followed by an outburst of subsequent objections to the Catholic teaching all across Europe. You may have heard of some of these names. There was John Calvin in France. There was John Knox in Scotland. There was Huldrych Zwingli in Switzerland. And there were numerous others. And a number of distinctives developed and we're going to look at them in a moment, but the primary thing that needs to be understood is that the Reformers derived their beliefs not simply from the traditions of, of the Pope and priests and men, but on the Bible, on God's holy word. Now, coinciding with this event, the Bible was becoming available in the language of the common person. 
So previously, the Bible was kept in Latin, although originally it was not written in Latin. It was written in, in Aramaic, in Hebrew, and in Greek. And yet it was kept in Latin so that the clergymen, the popes, the priests, that they could read it and they could understand it, but the people could not. And this contributed to corruption. But widespread availability and readability of God's word meant that corrupt interpretations were challenged. In England, King Henry VIII, he created the Church of England, which we know as Anglicanism. His first daughter, Mary, became queen, and she was strongly Catholic. And, and she got that from her mother's background, where her father, King Henry VIII, was pro-Protestantism. He was pro-the-Reformation. But his daughter, who uh, took the throne eventually, Mary, she became, she became the queen, and she was strongly Catholic. And she hated the Protestant Reformation. She had 300 Protestants publicly executed in her time. But thankfully, she died after five years of reigning. And she was succeeded by Queen Elizabeth I. And she reinstated Protestantism as the state religion of England. Freedom in New England, which is now the United States of America, the freedoms that were offered in this new land brought Protestantism and the various European denominations that had been developing to this new land. So denominations like Presbyterianism and the Congregationalists, who you, you may know as the Puritans, uh, the Anabaptists, these various denominations, they spread and they grew as they moved to America because they were free from the religious persecution of the Church of England. So even though the Protestant Reformation brought in a Protestant Reformed Church in England, these other denominations weren't welcome, but they found growth in this new land and in England over time as well. Now it's important to mention as well that there are five solas of the Reformation. And this is simply a summation of Reformed doctrine, of Protestant teaching. There is sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. It teaches us that the Bible is the ultimate, unmatched, and final authority for all Christians. Not the Pope, and not sacred to traditions, but God's holy word, scripture alone. And if you're taking notes, I encourage you to write down 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 to 21. The second sola of the Reformation is sola Christus, which means Christ alone. Sinners are justified before God by Christ alone. It is only on the basis of Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection that we are saved. Christ alone is the mediator between God and man, not the Pope and not another priest. And you can note down Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. The third sola of the Reformation is sola fide, 
which means faith alone. And this teaches us that salvation is a free gift received by faith alone. Salvation cannot be bought by indulgences, by doing good things, by being baptized, or by taking communion. It is not the result of any works. We receive it by faith alone. And you can note down Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 9, and of course John 3, 16 teaches this as well. The fourth sola is sola gratia, grace alone. Grace is simply an unmerited gift. It is a gift that is given to you that is unearned, something that you do not deserve. It cannot be bought by indulgences, by doing good... Sorry, I'm going back over what I was just talking about. We were not saved by any work of ourselves, whether religious or otherwise, but we are only saved by God's grace. And we learn this as well in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 9. And finally, the fifth solo of the Reformation is soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. In salvation, and really in all things, God alone receives all of the glory. No man, not ourselves, not I made the decision to follow Jesus Christ, look at me, I'm so great. No man, just God. God is the one who saves people to his good purposes and, and glory. And again, you can look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 9 for that one. So, we've looked at the five solas, we've had a brief uh, history of the Reformation. Now we're going to look at what are the main reasons for denominations? Why, why do we have denominations? Why isn't there just one church? Do we really need to be divided? And there's a couple of important reasons. And the first reason is this. We need to consider how a church is governed. Who's in charge at a church? Who has responsibility under God to determine what does the Word of God teach? Uh, what, what, how do we interpret this passage theologically? How do we worship? How do we do the ordinances, which is baptism and the Lord's Supper? How do we conduct fellowship? What does the governance look like? Do we have elders? Do we have deacons? Do we just have a pastor? Do we have no pastor at all? How these questions are answered will split and divide people. And different denominations have different answers to this question. The second question that we need to ask is, who should be baptized? And most of the early Protestants, they believed, as the Roman Catholics believed, that infants, that is, young children or babies, should be baptized. But even at that time, some Christians disagreed strongly with that. But that baptism is for believers only. And this is the early roots of the Baptist denomination and many other denominations that have followed suit as well. Another question is this, what is the nature of the supernatural gifts or what some refer to as the sign gifts? This is talking particularly about speaking in tongues, in the working of miracles, in gifts of healing and speaking prophecy. 
and, and, and Christians will differ on whether these have ceased regular operation or whether they still regularly operate. And I just want to make that distinction very clearly. Regular operation, meaning that they happen all the time. That's what regular operation means. Not that they don't just pop up every little once in a while, perhaps every hundred years or, or whatever in specific circumstances, but whether these gifts are in regular operation, whether they regularly are occurring on a weekly basis within the church. Traditionally, both Protestants and Catholics have agreed that these gifts, that they ceased with the apostles. Uh, but in the early 20th century, some Protestants began looking for a renewal of the spiritual gifts as regular usage in the church. And in the beginning of the 20th century, in America, a number of events took place in which people experienced what they believed was speaking in tongues, uh, as well as the working of miracles and gifts of healing. And this began what is called the Pentecostal or Charismatic Movement. And they traditionally believed that Christ removed the gifts, as everyone else believed, but that Christ would restore them just before his second coming. And some Pentecostals, they now believe that Jesus Christ didn't take away the gifts, that the church simply rejected them for a long period of time. Now, other reasons for denominations include nationality and language. Um, some people groups, they, 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 some people group themselves together. Scripture, um, they group themselves some people group themselves together as a church with a common language or with a common nationality, for example. And the final reason that I'll give you for division, for denominations, is this idea of liberalism and conservatism. conservatism. And this is simply in regards of the authority of Scripture. And what the liberals do is they jeopardize the authority of Scripture. They, they put scripture under their own judgment, under the suspicion of human reason. And in effect, what they're saying is that human reason is superior to scripture. They reinterpret the entire Bible. What they do is they do away with miracles, or they do away with passages that seem harsh or perhaps seem offensive. And this movement of liberalism within the church kind of only got introduced in the early 20th century and it divided denominations. So there are theologically liberal churches, and there are theologically traditional churches, even within every single denomination. There are some Baptist churches that are more liberal, and there are some that are more conservative. Same with Presbyterians, same, same with Anglicans. Whatever denomination, there will be some that are more liberal and more conservative. And this movement... Uh, called evangelical, Evangelicalism is a movement that began in the United States, uh, I believe at the maybe 60, 70 years ago or so. And what it did is it revitalized traditional Christian doctrine and the authority of God's word. Now let's look at some of the reasons why we would divide over certain issues. I, I hope that you see that, yeah, people will differ on some of these things and it would be pretty hard to enjoy fellowship with 
people who believe some of these different things from, from what you believe. Some of them you might be okay with, but then some of them you think, no, actually, I should not be engaging. They may be a Christian, but maybe it's not helpful for me to have the most unity with them. I want to go over a number of uh, distinctives and differences and the history of, of a number of denominations. And I'm going to start with the Anglicans. Now, the Anglicans, their history is, as mentioned earlier, it was created by King Henry VIII. It is called the Church of England, and it's separated from the Roman Catholic Church during the Reformation in 1534. That's about 500 years ago. And Anglicanism, it spread throughout the world through the British Empire. While the Britons were expanding and colonizing, they, of course, brought their religion with them. And so Anglicanism spread throughout the globe, not just in England, not just in Europe, but to all parts of the world. And here are some of their distinctives. The first one that I want to mention is called the 39 Articles. Uh, and that, this, this is a document that outlines their particular Reformed beliefs. They have what is referred to as a Reformed soteriology, more on that in a moment. But they also believe that the king, the king of England, is the head of the church instead of the pope. The Catholics believe that the pope is the head of the church. The Church of England believe that the king is the head of the church. Now, they also believe in what is called the normative principle of worship. The normative principle of worship. And what that means is that whatever is not prohibited in scripture, we're allowed to do in worship. If God doesn't speak about that, if he forbids this thing over here, of course we won't do that, but he hasn't talked about this, that means that we can do it. That is the normative principle of worship, and Anglicans will follow that. And that is in comparison to what is called the regulative principle of worship, and I believe that this is the correct interpretation of Scripture. The regulative principle of worship says, whatever Scripture instructs, we can do in worshiping God, and nothing more. What God tells us we can do to worship Him, that we do. But we do not deviate from that. We do not do what God has not commanded us to do. And the Anglicans, they have a couple of other traditional books. There's one called the Homilies, and that's just more details of the doctrine that exists within their 39 articles. And they have another book called the Book of Common Prayer. And this is a book that uses the Homilies and it uses the 39 articles and applies it to how the church is to worship. Now, some Anglicans, they're closer to Catholics, but some are closer to Reformed Protestants, like the Sydney Anglicans. The Sydney Anglicans are uniquely conservative. They're uniquely traditionally reformed in their beliefs. Um, they're a good bunch of people that I believe that we can have fellowship with. They practice uh, what is called confirmation. They view communion as symbolically the flesh and the blood of Christ. And unlike Catholics, Anglican bishops and Anglican priests can actually get married. Now, there's a couple of notable people that I want to mention, a number of Anglicans. You may have heard of a couple of these. C.S. Lewis, author of Mere Christianity and the Chronicles of Narnia. He was an Anglican. Another man who died quite recently, his name is J.I. Packer. And J.I. Packer is a very notable and a very strong and solid Anglican. Another one would be John Stott. John Stott. And another one who's 
who is excellent, his, his name is J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle. And these are very strong Anglicans from the last couple of hundred years or so uh, that have contributed really fantastic things to the Christian faith and understanding of, of the Bible. And that's because they trusted God's word and not the traditions of man or the traditions of the Catholic Church or whatever. These are rock-solid Anglicans. Next, I want to look at the Baptists. And their history really began in the 1600s as a separatist movement, as a group that separated from the Church of England a little bit after the time of the Reformation. And they were persecuted by the Church of England. And this persecution led them to flee to the American colonies. And they were also persecuted there. And they would eventually return to England as well. And the, but the Baptist denomination, it grew in the United States as the U.S. Constitution allowed for religious freedom, whereas at the time England did not. And Baptists, they're now found all over the world thanks to lots of mission work that has been done. And you'll find Baptist churches anywhere that you find Anglican churches. And now some notable distinctives. The first distinctive is, that, the distinctive is that the local church has the autonomy to see to its own affairs. What that means is that there is no human religious authority, not the Pope, not the high priest, not the earthly high priest, not um, the King of England. There is no human authority that oversees them. There's not even a presbytery or a, a diocese that, that oversee them. And of course, one distinctive is in the name. It's about baptism. Baptists do not baptize babies. They believe that baptism is a personal, individual choice. That baptism is for believers only. Baptism doesn't make you a Christian, but that it is how somebody uh, who is a Christian publicly declares that they are born again, that they are a Christian. So baptism is for believers only. And as such, infants cannot be baptized because they cannot make a credible profession of faith. Now there's variance on what age a child or a teenager can be to get baptized. But the truth is that they need to be a believer. They need to have had a credible profession of faith, a mature declaration and understanding of the gospel. Now, some Baptist churches, they lean more Arminian. And if you don't understand what that means, I will touch on it. Uh, but, and this is what would be referred to as the general Baptist stream. But there's some Baptist churches that lean more Calvinistic in teaching. You remember John Calvin from the Reformation? So they would lean more towards that doctrine and this is what is referred to as the particular Baptist stream. So the general Baptists are typically more Arminian, but the particular Baptists are typically more Calvinist. And they would hold to what is called the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. So where the Anglicans would hold to the 39 articles, particular Baptists that are more Calvinistic would hold to the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. A little bit more information on the particular Baptists. Uh, well, this would be the stream of Baptists that Emmanuel Baptist Church, the church that Unify Youth Group is a part of, um, that, that we would fit into. The 
1689 Second London Baptist Confession is an agreement. Uh, it's, it's in agreement with what is called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And what that is, is that's the Presbyterian Confession. And that came earlier than the London Baptist Confession. And it's similar to that on nearly every issue, but there's small differences regarding church governance and regarding the topic of baptism. It's similar to another declaration called the Savoy Declaration by the Congregationalists. But both the Baptist Confession and the Congregationalist Confession, they used the Westminster Confession of Faith as a template, and they tweaked a few elements, particularly regarding church governance and baptism. They, the particular Baptists believe in a reformed soteriology. So that's what I mean when I was talking about a Calvinistic. They, they hold to what are the uh, uh, doctrines of grace or the five points of Calvinism. And I'll get to that when we get to the Presbyterians because John Calvin was a Presbyterian. But Baptists, they teach what the Bible says. They have a strong passion for teaching what the Bible says and not simply the tradition of man. And they believe in the regulative principle of worship. That is, that we do as God commands and nothing more. And some notable people that you may have heard of that are Baptists include John Piper, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, uh, Alistair Begg, and John Bunyan. John Bunyan is the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, if you've heard of that classic. These were all Baptists. Next, we'll look at Presbyterians. And Presbyterianism began during the Reformation as similar-minded churches across Europe followed the doctrines taught by John Calvin of France and John Knox of Scotland. And they produced the Westminster Confession of Faith and a couple of other documents as well. And they hold other documents that are similar to the Dutch and to the German. I won't get into that because I won't have time. But some of their distinctives uh, is that they have a strong emphasis on the covenant, on God's covenant that he has with man. Uh, Their theology is theocentric. It is God-centered. They believe strongly in the sovereignty of God in salvation, that God controls everything, including who will be saved. And this is what Calvinism, the doctrines of of, of grace, the five points of Calvinism teaches. Firstly, total depravity. Secondly, unconditional election. Thirdly, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. People remember it by Tulip. And they have a strong theological emphasis, the Presbyterians do. They're not into experientialism, because I experienced this and it must be true. They practice infant baptism. They believe that when you are baptized as an infant, you are baptized into the covenant community that it's something that you can look back to in order to remember and know that you're saved, unless, of course, you have later rejected the covenant, so infants are baptized. They believe that communion is not for infants, uh, but that when someone has made a credible profession of faith, they can take communion. And they believe in the regulative principle of worship, which is what God says goes and nothing more. They take communion and baptism as signs and seals of being in the covenant community. They have elders that oversee churches and congregations, and they belong to a higher structure called a presbytery, and multiple presbyteries meet together, and they form a general assembly. And so there's a big structured government there. 
And some notable people that you may have heard of include John Calvin, R.C. Sproul, Tim Keller, and Kevin DeYoung. And these are all excellent teachers in, in a variety of ways. Next, I want to look at the Lutherans. And the Lutherans, their history is brief. I'll keep it brief at least. It has its beginnings with Martin Luther and his reformed teaching and movement during the 1500s. Remember, he was one of the pioneers in the Reformation. And so it's a group that would follow after his teachings. And some of their distinctives, of course, that they follow after Luther's teaching, but they have a strong emphasis on law and gospel. Law and gospel. Law teaches that you're not good enough, and gospel says that's okay because Jesus is good enough, and Jesus is the Savior. A strong emphasis on law and gospel. They are Christocentric, so they focus most centrally on Christ. And they don't look at personal experiences to know that, 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 that you have salvation, but they aim to look to Christ. Some believe that baptism is an act that saves you, uh, that communion is the literal body and blood of Jesus. And Catholics also believe this, but Catholics believe the bread and the cup change in essence to become the blood and flesh of Christ, whereas Lutherans differ a little bit where they say that the bread and cup share a union with Christ. Their essence doesn't change, but it shares a union with Christ. And a couple of notable people are, of course, Martin Luther, and the other one that I'll mention who was more recent is Harold Senkbeel. Now next we'll look at the Methodists. And the Methodists, they trace their origins to the 1700s, following after a man named John Wesley and what he taught. And this teaching, it spread across America because of its heavy evangelistic uh, and social emphasis. And it was a group that broke from the Church of England to form the Methodist Church in 1797. That was the year when it really became its own thing. And here are some of its distinctives. While it originated with John Wesley, it's changed a lot since then. Uh, Wesleyan churches included in that. And they have a strong emphasis on, on tradition, on scripture, but also on experience. They are what we may refer to as pneumocentric, which really means Holy Spirit-centered. And that this, the Spirit leads us on what is called the method that leads to righteousness. They are Arminian, so they would teach against the doctrines of grace, against John Calvin's teaching. Uh, they believe that man has free will to choose whether to follow God or not. And at the end of the method, one can have improved so much that they become fully mature in Christ. They call this entire sanctification. Uh, and there's a strong social emphasis in these Methodist churches, such as uh, giving to the poor and acts of social justice, and they strive for spiritual perfection. Three notable Methodists include John Wesley, his brother Charles Wesley, and both of them wrote thousands of hymns, some of them that we sing gladly, uh, and another one would be George Whitfield. Next we'll look at the Pentecostals, and Pentecostalism, it traces back to the early 1900s, and it's built off a number of spiritual revivals, uh, one known as the Azusa Street Revival in 1906, 
and it developed over three waves. The first wave was in the early 1900s, and it was, it, it was a new denomination, kind of like the Assemblies of God. And so this was the first wave of Pentecostalism. The second wave was uh, between the 1960s and 1970s, and it's what's known as the Charismatic Movement. The Charismatic Movement. And this began within, within and outside of Pentecostal churches. So the Pentecostal doctrine began to spread, not just simply within Pentecostal churches, but to other denominations as well. And they had a strong emphasis on the spiritual gifts, the sign gifts, gifts such as uh, what they refer to as a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, prophecy, working miracles, healings, speaking in tongues, and interpretation of tongues. And the third wave uh, began in the 1980s, and it's, uh, they refer to it as third wave evangelicalism. It's another wave of Pentecostalism that's similar to, but set itself apart from traditional Pentecostalism, and set itself apart, but is similar to the charismatic movement. Not much more on that. But some of the distinctives is that they are Armenian in soteriology, so they believe that we can choose uh, whether to follow God or not. They also uh, believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that there is a second baptism. Other denominations may be Christian, but they haven't experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is what they believe. They believe that this baptism of the Holy Spirit, it occurs at conversion, and it's, it's an empowerment by the Holy Spirit, and the believer will begin to speak in tongues as evidence of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and that all of these spiritual gifts, they continue, including healing and speaking in tongues. And just a brief comment on that, on the interpretation of speaking in tongues to clear up some confusion, is when you hear someone charismatic speaking in tongues, it will sound like gibberish. They may insist that it is an angelic language, or that it's a private language where they speak to God. But other religions actually have experienced the same sort of phenomena, so I don't believe that it is directly from God. I believe something else is happening there. And so what they believed and developed from the early 1900s was that this is an angelic language, this is a different language, a totally unknown language to talk to God. But the true interpretation of Scripture in the early church where speaking in tongues began with the apostles back in Acts, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they began speaking in tongues. And this was the same time that the nations were, 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 were gathered in and they, the, the apostles were going to go out to all of the nations and to speak their languages and to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the glory of God. And in that context, speaking in tongues is known languages. It are real languages that people spoke. And they were languages that these individuals did not previously know, but that God gave them for a purpose, to fulfill his mission in reaching the nations. Pentecostals tend to downplay a traditionally reformed theology, and they focus heavily on experience. They seek to feel God's presence. They use highly emotive language. Of course, they believe the worship is carried out by the normative principle, and that's led to many strange and wrong expressions of so-called worship. And they, of course, emphasize spiritual experiences over the means of grace. 
Speaking in tongues, baptism of the Spirit, prophetic messages all tend to be more desirable than the means of grace, more desirable than preaching of God's authoritative word exegetically and faithfully, more than prayer, the ordinances, communion, baptism, worship by the regulative principle. And God continues, they believe that God continues to give new revelation today by speaking directly to people. And gospel proclamation, they believe, when you're proclaiming the gospel to somebody, should be accompanied by a miracle, by a work to validate your message. And some notable, I don't have notable people, but I do have notable churches that have come out of the Pentecostal movement. Uh, This would include Bethel Church, Elevation Church, C3, Glorious Gospel Church, which is basically Bethel Church here in Sydney, and of course Hillsong as well, are all churches that have come out from, not that they've rejected, but they've come as a product of the Pentecostal movement. And the final denomination that I want to talk about is is non-denominationalism, and this began in the 20th century. What what, what makes it different is that these churches are independent. They have no over-governing body like a presbytery or a diocese, or similar in Baptists to that way. They write out their own doctrinal statements. They do not have a creed. They do not have a confession that they subscribe to. And they are broadly evangelical. And what that means is that they do not align to any one certain tradition. They don't align completely to the Anglicans or the Presbyterians, although they do tend to lean more Baptist because they typically practice believers-only baptism. But theologically, they do not hold to any one tradition. Instead, they're going to borrow uh, from Baptists, from Presbyterians, from Anglicans, and kind of mix it together a a little bit. And a couple of notable people would include Tony Evans and Francis Chan. So this is a lot of information, a lot of information that we've covered. And there's a lot of differences. Some of these denominations have more differences than others. But I want you to recognize that there's also a lot of similarities. There are some, of course, that are more similar to others. And understanding this, it helps us to see who we can enjoy fellowship and unity with and practice evangelism with. For example, taking communion at a Lutheran church is going to be very different to experiencing it at a Baptist church. Being baptized at a Pentecostal church will be a very different experience to a Presbyterian church. It would go against my conscience to evangelize with someone aligned with the charismatic movement, for example, because their evangelizing has a different emphasis than mine. And then where does the poor soul who gets evangelized to, where do they go to church? But I want you to recognize that there are also similarities. And confessions, Christian historic confessions, they're really easy ways to see what a church believes. Or jumping on a church's website and seeing what they believe can help do that as well. What they choose to say and what they choose not to say. And the Baptists of the particular Baptist stream and the Presbyterians, particularly the Sydney Anglicans as well, We all have a very similar reformed teaching in regards to soteriology, which is how God saves and his sovereignty. We differ on how churches are organized, as well as how we carry out baptism. 
But what is taught between these denominations, the particular Baptists, the Anglicans, the Presbyterians, is very similar. We share a common Christian heritage that believes that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. And to that, we must obey and practice uh, the worship of God and the proclamation of the gospel, not based on the traditions or the experiences of man, but on the word of God. And so as we've looked through a number of these denominations, I hope that this time has helped you to see for yourself the commonalities that exist between denominations and the differences. And I hope that this is going to help you to discern. It'll help you know what to do, uh, when and how and with whom we can share unity with as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll close with just a book recommendation. This book here is by Sinclair Ferguson. It is called In the Year of Our Lord. This is not so much about denominations and the differences between denominations, but this is about church history. And what Sinclair Ferguson does in this book is each chapter, starting from the time of Christ, just following Christ, each chapter is on a different century of church history. The notable things that happened in that time, uh, important people and doctrine and theology. And so if you want to learn about church history, which does include where denominations and, and certain beliefs came from, then this is an excellent and very easy to read book. One chapter per century, you could literally read a chapter a night and get it done in less, less than a month. So that would be my recommendation. But let's close off our time in a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this time. I thank you that you have chosen a people to worship you, to serve you. And Lord, although we may have differences with other denominations, other Christians. Lord, we pray that you would help us to discern where we can have unity and where we must withhold our unity. Perhaps believing that these people are still Christians, but knowing maybe it's not the best idea to evangelize with them or to suggest their material. But Lord, may we also enjoy fellowship with other Christians that are like-minded, but perhaps of different denominations. Would you help us to see the differences so that we can, and the similarities so that we can know where to unite, Lord? And may that unity be strong. May we be the body of Christ. May we be his blessed church. In Jesus' name, amen.